Okay, so what are we talking about today, Dave? Drugs. Drugs. Okay, so and how to make the, them using computers. How to make them using computers. So specifically, I think today we're talking about drugs that are more like antibodies. Typically small oh. drugs are small molecules, but we're gonna be talking about antibodies and how to make antibodies using computers. Is that correct? I think uh, so. It sounds a lot more professional than what I just said, so let's go with that. Okay, okay. So today our guest is uh, Sandeep Kumar, and he's uh, been in uh, designing biologics using computers for a number of years now. Uh, and we're going to get to speak with him about uh, bioinformatics and how that's going to help antibody drug discovery. Welcome. You're listening to Under the Surface, a podcast where we have in-depth discussions on computer-aided techniques in drug discovery. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Under the Surface. I'm your host, Chris Williams, Principal Scientist at Chemical Computing Group. And I'm uh, Chris's co-host, Dave Thompson. I'm an Application Scientist at Chemical Computing Group. Our guest today is Dr. Sandeep Kumar, who currently holds the position of Distinguished Research Fellow in Biotherapeutics at Boeing Ingelheim. Sandeep is joining us today to talk about the increasing role of informatics and computational methods in biopharmaceutical drug development. Thank you for joining us today, Sandeep. Thank you for having me, Chris. Okay, Sandeep, thanks for being here. You've been doing this for a while. I see you've, you've been at BI for almost five years now, and there you built the Computational Biochemistry and Bioinformatics Group, or CBB, uh, from scratch. You also worked at Pfizer for eight years, where you also seem to have focused on biotherapeutics. You've also worked in small molecule drug discovery, and your PhD is in computational molecular biophysics. So can I ask you, how did you get started in biotherapeutics? What got you interested in this? Were you always interested in this? Did it come from your career experience, your time as a professor? Why are you doing this field? Um, thanks, Chris, for asking this. Um, I'm doing it mainly for our patients. And I, I must say that all that I'm going to speak in this podcast is all on my own behalf. Uh, and um, I do not in any way reflect uh, Boringer Ingelheim's position. Uh, for this because my company has its own media cell and that's where they speak on behalf of the company. So I'm speaking just on my behalf. Um, so I, I'm doing it for the patients, Chris. Um, essentially, uh, the reason is that I have been always very interested in computers. I uh, believe it or not, I started using doing computation a uh, long time back around uh, my master's, which was about 25, 30 years ago. Um, and I have no uh, formal training for computer science, I should say that. Um, but I have been, I started my career as an undergraduate in physics and soon realized that we have to have biology to understand everything. Uh, so I did my master's in molecular biology and biotechnology. And that's where I got interested into computers. And my PhD then was computational biophysics. Um, uh, and then of course I did uh, for my postdoc, I came up to the NIH. And that's where I think I started getting a taste of what it means when the protein itself is a drug or the antibody itself is a drug. And at that time, it was uh, it was around 2000, and I was essentially looking for opportunities to be able to work for it. But it wasn't until like next seven years that an opportunity came my way, where I uh, got a job offer from the formulation process 
development group in um, St. Louis Advisor Incorporation. And that's, that's exactly where I started learning about antibodies. Um, before that, as you mentioned, I've done uh, some small molecule drug design. I'm also then um, mainly work on protein structure function relationships uh, as postdoc. So in some ways I was lucky, um, in some ways I was looking for it. Um, so I think that's how I came in, uh, essentially because I got a job uh, with industry and, and then I started realizing the potential of biotherapeutics. And recently you just hosted the what I was surprised to be was the first symposium on biopharmaceutical informatics sponsored by the Antibody Society. The first symposium on biopharmaceutical informatics was essentially uh, by design. I mean, the way we designed it was that we bring people from academia as well as uh, industry together to brainstorm on the opportunities that are available to us today that probably were not available three years ago or four years ago. And then how can we actually take advantage of these new opportunities in the field? Can you elaborate on that? Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, to me, the new, new opportunity is really in towards in silico antibody discovery. Um, so far, traditionally antibody discovery is either via animal immunizations or hybridomas or uh, phage or yeast display libraries. And each of these techniques, uh, I mean, they are all heavily experimental and all of these techniques have one or other uh, limitations, um, which is natural, right? Uh, uh, it happens with every technique. And there was a paper actually by in Nature Biotechnology where uh, people who are advocating for uh, drug discovery using display technologies, uh, they have essentially put up a way or saying a way that the drug display technologies have a research place where they probably can uh, give you better reagents for discovery. Can you give, give you better drug candidates? And there's a whole iceberg to be uh, really evolved and see, uh, see if we can work uh, for antibody discovery. But to me, I, it looks like, what if we could discover antibodies in silico? And there we don't have a limitations of age and yeast display because there is no uh, 10 to power nine billions we can generate if we can train artificial intelligence models, we can generate as many antibodies as we want. And really, to me, uh, if that happens, then it's a, it's it's a whole Himalaya below under the surface, in a way, rather than just an iceberg. Because using computation, we can open up a completely new way of discovering uh, antibodies. And one of the examples there would be, for example, uh, when we discover antibodies through experimental means, we get what we get. And many a times these antibodies are developability challenged. They are functional, but they are, they are, there are issues with developability. But when we are generating uh, libraries in silico, we can actually take uh, 
the challenge of, because we can say we are designing only the developable molecules. And now we are going to find binders or functional molecules among this universe of molecules that are inherently developable, that are inherently medicine-like, and go from there. And I think that is an opportunity. This will actually shorten our drug discovery timelines. But more importantly, it will also save us lots of time. And of course, um, eventually we, we will be in a stage where we will do the experiments, but we would be doing the experiments uh, in a much more wiser manner and where we, we would know what we are looking for and then we are confirming it through the experiments. So that's the opportunity I, I see. Sandy, sorry, Chris, it sounds uh, reminiscent of the, the hope in small molecule space as well, right? Where I'm going to work in a certain region of a very large biochemical space, and that region will be circumscribed by, you know, um, uh, favorable uh, characteristics or properties, and then that will reduce costs, that will speed through my cycle time. Um, it doesn't always go as nicely as planned in the small molecule space. Are there reasons to think this will go better in antibody space, or do you think there'll be the same kinds of challenges? Um, I I would say that uh, I'm hopeful that it will go better with big molecule space. And part of the thing is that when we are doing a small molecule docking onto a drug molecule, we are inherently, from a theoretician's perspective, we are inherently dealing with two different realms. Proteins are typically described in much more empirically, much much less precise manner. Our force fields are much more empirical, while we are more precise with the small molecules. And now we are trying to put something that's inherently much more precise into something that's a little bit more fuzzy which is a protein. But when we are in the antibody field, both the sides are equally fuzzy. So in some ways, I think that it, it's, it may sound crazy, but in some ways, I think working on the same level uh, of uh, theory might give us some better uh, examples and better success rate. But I would not say that the road will not have any bumps. Uh, it will not be smooth, um, and because if it had been smooth, people would have already done it. Yeah, of course. Uh, we recently developed what we call as medicine-like profiles. So essentially, what we did is that we uh, took uh, antibodies that are currently in the market, because these are the antibodies that have gone through all the phases of discovery of the uh, formulation and um, product development and then clinical trials. And these are available to uh, physicians in hospitals uh, to serve the patients for their medical needs. So we thought that this, uh, these antibodies should inherently have certain features of safety, certain features of uh, efficacy, and certain features of manufacturing or develop developability, or at least the challenges they posed were surmountable. They were not insurmountable that they killed the project. So we actually took those antibodies, modeled their variable regions, 
and then we calculated all the descriptors and we actually uh, for, um, kind of looked for the distributions for these different quantities uh, that we actually uh, computed from the models. And now when we have a antibody, which is at the discovery stage, uh, a drug candidate, whether it's at a very early stages or in a more advanced stage, we can always ask the question, how does it look like with respect to the antibodies that are already in the market? So these are like how medicine-like these antibodies are. So in some ways, uh, we, we are recapturing what happened in the small molecule world and then asking the same similar questions. Um, I, I think the major difference uh, to appreciate is that there's much more data for small molecules than it is for biotherapeutics. And then, so you've got this, these descriptors and these descriptors have a certain distribution which um, will reflect whether or not uh, an antibody would be good or not as a drug. And if something's outside that space of you know, uh, good drug, um, is your model interpretable? Does it give us suggestions in which way you can take uh, a, a bad antibody and say, make it a good one? Uh, yes, um, we, we, in our, uh, we published this work last year and uh, in PNAS, um, that was the initial version of our work. We, we were able to show that some of the molecules, for example, well-known cases where people have actually encountered developability problems and discontinued the projects, later on created those mutations and showed that their developability profiles improved, we were able to see the same thing in, with our medicine likeness profile. The mutants uh, were kind of more amenable uh, to the five-dimensional space that I described uh, compared uh, to the parent molecules and we could see that very well. Um, another thing is that recently we have expanded this profile and we do uh, compute them in different um, conditions. So um, one is basically manufacturing uh, conditions like low pH, uh, hold the viral inactivation step during bioprocess. Another is more of a formulation conditions, the drug that we store like at a stable formulation, slightly acidic pH. And then the third is a physiological condition, how the drug should behave in vivo at pH 7.4, for example. And then we are able to create these three distributions. And we actually create that the scores for each antibodies, each of the hits that we get early stages, and we create the percentiles from there for these distributions. Where they where do they fall, and when and then you, of course we add them up, and we see that uh, we are able to catch the molecules that that have been that have failed. For example, phase three trials, or that have uh, the literature described cases that have actually developability challenges, uh, scoring on the lower percentiles, while the molecules that are well known uh, for good developability, and they are known that they can be developed as uh, uh, IVs or sub-Qs and different flexible ways, they tend to score on the higher percentile for us. 
So we are able to uh, say intuitively uh, that uh, things that are scoring on the lower percentile uh, are likely uh, to be developability challenge. And of course, developability here is not just manufacturability, but also safety and efficacy combined. So, and do you have three separate models for that? We've done this traditional molecular modeling, um, you know, with physics-based force fields and whatnot. Um, some of the things that were coming out of the symposium were some of these more, I guess, informatics and machine-based learning methods. Um, how do you feel these are impacting the field? I think they are very important and they're complementary to physical models and molecular simulations. And that's why the, bio, uh, the whole biopharmaceutical informatics, the vision itself talks about combining the uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning based models with uh, molecular models. And of course, with the experimental data. That's why this field is so exciting. Uh, there's a lot to be done, a lot to be discovered. Um, in some ways, I, I think computation has arrived both for small molecules and for big molecules in the sense that um, computation probably will play increasingly important role in drug discovery, probably as much important as the experiments. That's a, a bold statement. It is Sandy, a bold statement. Right? I thought yes. I stuck a flag in the sand there. <laughs> I think there's lots of people in the community that, that might be like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, yes, uh, it, is, it is a bold statement. It's a lot of hope. Um, I don't want to say that uh, it's, it, the hope is without basis. There's a lot of basis in there. Uh, but yes, it it's. Do you think if you ask most of your colleagues where where the modeling groups sit, they tend to be service organizations, right? Like, uh, you know, I, I need to understand a bit about this space, and instead of me spending a lot of time and capital and resources experimentally exploring it, what can you tell me computationally? Yes, and that's a, that's a very different paradigm than what you just described, which is we're going over there. Who's coming? Exactly. And that, that's where I, I, I want to go. I want to take the computer uh, from serving as an assistant, a lab assistant in a way, uh, to more of a guiding principle yeah. and more of a, something that can initiate the projects, enable the projects. And imagine the, the opportunity there. There are tons of targets that we cannot immunize and therefore we cannot develop drugs against them mm. uh, because they are not very well behaved and therefore they don't um, you don't get a good expression levels and you don't get a very inherently uh, soluble molecules that you can do your experiments in vitro but what if computer could uh, because it doesn't require any material in the first place right and what if we could find the sequences already uh, through computation, then computer actually becomes the initiator of those projects. And then of course we need the experimental testing, uh, but that's where the opportunity is that because we have expanded now the druggable antigen space, instead of being able to drug maybe 60, 70% of the targets that we want to uh, develop antibodies against it, Maybe now we can drug uh, 90, 95% of the targets 
And that's the opportunity. And that's why I feel that computation is ready to go onto the next step where it can actually start with the disease concepts, start designing the drug, do, uh, make sure that the drug is developable. Um, it has a high affinity for binding to the target and then go to the experiments in the lab, synthesize that drug, test in the animals or first in vitro or uh, of course, but in the cell-based assays or whatever, tested that it is effective, it is functional, it is manufacturable and then go from there. And I, I think that computation-led discovery would be faster and it will also be uh, much less time and resource consuming. And it's like not only the res uh, resource in terms of FTEs, but more importantly, the lab consumables. And uh, you can imagine like even one enzyme bottles, typically uh, 100 ml cost several thousand dollars. Um, so there are lots of costs involved with the experiments. And when the experiments are done, without the help of computation, um, without any guidance in, in some ways. Uh, I think some of the resources that, those are the kind of resources we can save when we start adding the computation and the guidance. I think that's the exciting thing, right? It doesn't matter whether the, the innovation is truly paradigm shifting, whether, whether we end up getting away with not running experiments and just let the computer decide. I personally don't think that's ever going to be the case. Yes, I'm less, I'm less, less. I'm more skeptical about that. Mm -hmm. um, but I am excited by the fact that, irrespective, all of the benefits we see in using computers to 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 make drugs is ultimately, hopefully, going to benefit the, the patient, us. Right? So that's that's exciting. Yes, yes, and experiments are an important part of drug discovery process, drug discovery, drug development process. We should not forget that, mm -hmm. and. Um, with computation, we can only uh, kind of make the things more efficient. Well, so you, you said that you, you know, Chris, when he introduced you, said you you built your group up from scratch at BI, um, and then one of the things that was most exciting about the symposium was that, as you said, it was by design. There were lots of people from industry, lots of people from academia, but the industry wasn't just the pharmaceutical industry; it was the technology industry. It was all over. Yes. So, as you're building your group, where are you looking for the people? How are you finding these people that could be in computer science, that could be in applied mathematics, that could be in physics, could be in uh, biology? Like, it ha does that become a, a, a massive challenge? Um, in some ways, it does. Um, but, uh, you know, in uh, we also internally have computational biology groups uh, that are we are able to collaborate. My own group actually is very small. I would love it to be bigger, but it is small. <laughs> Uh, so I rely a lot on collaborations mm -hmm. uh, with partners, both who are experimentalists and also who are computational biologists. And you know the cross-functional collaborations is the way to go. But coming back to your symposium point, I, I think um, it was a, a deliberately we we actually included in the panel the technology companies um, because I feel that there is a lot a tech company can do for biotech. And in fact, I, I had written a blog about it several years ago which, which on LinkedIn, which basically said, can tech help biotech? And that probably was, um, was four or five years ago when I had only recently moved 
towards that research rather than the development of drug discovery cycle, development cycles. And I think um, it was on purpose um, the, uh, that we wanted to bring the technology companies into the symposium and help them think about real world problems and how then they can become a catalyst for change for biotech. Now that's that's a very, very uh, good idea. I want to ask one final question. In your work, you know, what are the biggest myths or stereotypes that you found? Like you're trying to push this uh, this field in industry. What are the, the hurdles you've overcome? What are the types of um, uh, myths about your field have you encountered? So I, I think the biggest myth is that um, computers uh, don't work or uh, whatever predictions we make, they don't work in the real life. I think that's one of the biggest myth. And the second myth is that uh, as a computational biologist or computational chemist, I don't need to be in the lab. You, you only get a few shots on goal with your yeah. experimental colleagues to say, uh, no, I think we should go in this direction. And then, like you said, they're very busy, they're very time constrained. So if they do decide to, to shift in that direction and it turns out to not be useful to them, you know, how, how often are they going to want to go down that route again? Exactly. Right? It's, 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 the trust is quickly lost. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's the biggest bit also, because that's why people say the predictions don't work. And then whatever you design in computer doesn't really work in experiments. Um, so yeah. so that, that's going to be the thing to overcome in the coming years is to develop the methods and make them more robust, at least in the eyes of the experimentalist. Uh, yes, or at least uh, maybe convince some of, some of the experimentalists uh, to start accumulating consistent data sets and put them in the databases, not well, in the PowerPoint slides and uh, Excel sheets, but in well, the databases so and that everybody that's, can that's access that's it. That's actually a very important point that we we have skirted around this entire <laughs> podcast is that a lot of this uh, you know uh, machine learning and you know, informatics-based stuff requires information. And a lot of times the information is in uh, lab notebooks, PowerPoint presentations, and the task of accumulating and annotating in a consistent manner, all of this data is a Herculean task, but it's so crucial for the future development of these informatic systems. Absolutely. And I think uh, it's time that pharmaceutical industry actually looks and works on uh, digital transformation. If you look uh, at banking industry or other industries around, they're heavily digitalized. Um, there's much more technology in our homes than in our labs. Um, I, I think uh, we need to digitalize. Uh, we need to come into the digital transformation era. And for that, the first thing is digitize the data, then digitalize, create the digital twins, create machine learning models, algorithms, and then the third one is just sit back, relax, and enjoy the fruits of this transformation. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, you, you make it. You make it sound so easy. Let's let's have a drink and celebrate. No, but I, I think if it is that easy, right? Then then the technology companies that have decided to pursue life sciences directions should make out like gangbusters. All right. Okay. So look, 
that brings us to the end of our show. Thank you, Sandeep, for joining us. Uh, it was a great conversation about uh, uh, informatics and, and biopharmaceuticals and what the future perhaps has to hold for us. Um, we're looking forward to hear more about this as time goes on. And speaking of which, you can catch another talk by Dr. Sandeep Kumar later in June at the Computational Antibody Drug Discovery State-of-the-Art Symposium hosted by the Antibody Society. Sandeep will be discussing case studies of computation helping experimentation in the development of antibody-based therapeutics. For more information on the conferences mentioned in today's episode, check out our show notes. And we'd like to thank our listeners for uh, joining us. And thank you very much, Chris, and thanks, Dave, for hosting me. You're very welcome. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Under the Surface. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an upcoming episode. Until then, signing off.